Thank you, singers. <clears throat> I'm going to put this on and get things situated real quick here. Hopefully everything is smooth. And you guys remember this? This is how we... Uh, that's how we started this series. If you're new, if you haven't been here in this series, you're probably wondering, like, what in the world is going on? Is something going to happen in this video? Is something, like, when we first showed this, people, we were like, is something going to, like, pop out? <laughs> nope. It's literally just a, a video someone shot hiking on this trail. It's about two and a half hours long, and I grabbed a couple minutes. And I, I put this on here because we just don't do this anymore. Some of you may go on hikes. I'm so glad the stockies are here. Hiking professionals. But we as a society, this isn't how we get from place to place. We get in our car. We listen to our music or a radio or a podcast on the way to wherever we're going. When was the last time you heard a bird singing as you were commuting somewhere? Usually... We would be like, hey, I'm going to go for a walk. And it's an intentional act so I could hear a bird. But what I'm trying to do by sharing you that is that when we read the Bible, we are reading the stories of people who experienced that pace of life every day. And we don't have that pace of life anymore. It's so fast and it's so filled with entertainment and content and information and other people's perspectives and other and we hardly even get a chance to just sit or walk and think and so what we're looking at this month is uh is it's called along the way and it is the uh the idea that when we when we look in the bible we took we took a few chapters in luke uh, and, or in Matthew and now in Luke, and we looked at people who were traveling from one place to, to another, point A to point B, and along the way, something happened. And they found something that they maybe wouldn't have found in our fast pace of society. And so this is uh, what we're going to be looking at today, if I can hit these buttons. And so along the way, today we're going to be looking at leaving. That's the title of our our lesson. So first we looked at approaching, and that was uh, when Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. He had these interactions, three interactions on the road to Jerusalem with his disciples. And then, and then entering was Palm Sunday, and that's when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And then the discovering was Easter. That was the, the women headed to the, the tomb, which they thought was not going to be empty. They discovered it was empty met the angel. And now we're going to look at what's commonly referred to as the road to Emmaus. And it's the story of two disciples. We're going to read the whole thing. Two disciples 
who are leaving Jerusalem after all the craziness happened. And they're on this walk. And it's a long walk. They're walking all day. And they have this interaction. And we're going to read that right now. So hang in there because this is somewhat of a long scripture. But we're going to go through that, that whole section. Luke 24, starting in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now guys, we can make a seven-mile trip in a few minutes, right? Jump on, you know, I-96 and come over to 131, and I'm in Rockford, and it's no problem. But then, this is a seven-mile trip, and this is a story that lasts all day. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him, supernaturally, we assume. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us what they had seen. A vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. So they walk all the way there all day, and then at night they get up and run all the way back. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. All right, that's the story. The road to Emmaus. So it's, It's still resurrection, resurrection Sunday, empty tomb, and then they leave to go to Emmaus, and it's a long walk, and then they meet Jesus, but they don't know it's Jesus. And so Jesus is talking with them and hanging out with them and and asking them questions and answering their questions and discipling them. He's like, how foolish are you? Don't you realize? And then when they get there, they're like, you got to stay with us, and they still don't know it's Jesus. And then he reveals himself to them, and they're like, we have to go tell everybody. And so, I've got three lessons. There's like a dozen lessons you could pull out of this scripture. I've got three lessons that I think these guys got and we can lose sight of. But man, if we can learn these three things, 
God would, God would be so encouraged by our hearts if we can learn these three things. The first one is this. History, not philosophy. And I've preached this point here before. We did a, a storyteller's uh, series back at the old building. What do I mean by that? History, not philosophy. The gospel, the gospel message, the good news is a matter of history, not philosophy. We run into this, you know, in campus ministry or in college campuses where it's easy to like, even Paul ran into this in Athens. Someone will say, well, Christianity is cool and all. That's an idea. I also have ideas. Let me listen. I'll hear your ideas and then I'll decide if that's, you know, if I agree. It's easy to think that religion is all about ideology. Like which ideology will help humanity the most? Which ideology will improve my situation? What is the ethical moral construct to make society better? And we think Christianity. And we think if, if everybody just belie- you know, believed in, in Jesus and, and lived by Jesus, you know, America would be better and all the nations would be better and everything would be better. And I'm not going to argue that with you. But we're losing sight of this. That's philosophy and the gospel is a matter of history. And here, we're going to look back at these guys. This is what I love. Jesus says, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And their reply is, are you the only one that doesn't know what happened? (laughs) Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth. And then... They don't argue anything about ethics, morality, how you should live. They're literally just saying, did you see what happened here? And so, as a human being, God is sovereign over like everything that rules our lives. Okay, He, he knows how our brains work. He knows how truth works. He knows how relationships work. He knows how communities work. He knows how decision making works. And that's all within his understanding. Now, when we try to understand those things and we try to figure out those things, we study them and we give them a name. Things like psychology, ethics, philosophy, and those are good to study. And we should. We should keep studying those things. But the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, it was not a proclamation of those things, it was actually a demonstration. It was a display of how God actually works in the world, not just theorizing about what we think everyone else should believe and do. The early disciples were not trying to persuade people into a different ideology. They were literally just explaining what happened. What happened in the ministry of Jesus, what happened in the cross, what happened in the empty tomb. And, moving forward, what happened in their lives. They were never saying, well, this is what I think would improve the condition of the common man. They were like, did you see that? That's crazy! And I would just put before you that that's what we need to do also. Let's fast forward into Acts. Peter, again, he's doing cool things but getting in trouble for it. In Acts 4, starting in 18. Then they called them in 
and again, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. And this is one of my favorite verses. And this is actually like the inspiration for our little church logo thing. It's just a speech bubble with the cross in it. But it's not, they didn't say, as for us, we cannot help convincing everybody that they're wrong and we're right. As for us, we can't, st- we can't help but speaking about how people should live. All they're saying is, this is what I saw, and this is what I heard, and so I know it's true, and I'm going to keep talking about that. But, I'm going to get a little serious here. There have been times over the years where I've tried to counsel and disciple people, because maybe they said something that wasn't very helpful, or maybe even a little hurtful or divisive, and I've actually had this scripture quoted back to me. Like, well, I can't help it. Who am I to, to listen to you or God? I have to say these things. The problem is, when I, the times where people have said this to me as a minister, they weren't talking about Jesus or what Jesus did in their lives. They were talking about some opinion or something they found on the internet or some podcast that was really cool for them. And, and I'm glad. You can, keep, you can keep watching that stuff and listening to that stuff. We preach that. We declare that boldly. We evangelize that and not what Jesus is doing. We remain silent about what Jesus has done in our lives and we boldly proclaim everything else. So here's my question. Very simple. Am I telling people what Jesus has done? Not the ways that we think They should live. Just what Jesus has done. And you might be like, I don't know what Jesus has done. Then you need to spend time thinking about what Jesus has done in your life. And that's what a testimony is. It is a powerful thing. It's not just, hey, here's here's who Jesus is. No, a testimony is, here's who I was without Jesus. And now here's who I am with Jesus... I'm not, I'm not perfect and I'm not better than anyone, but I can always point back to the transformational power of Jesus in my life. Am I telling the world the ongoing history of how God is working through people? Or am I just getting into fights and trying to persuade them how I think they should live? The gospel is a matter of history, not philosophy. And we could, we could wrestle with that for the next hour and a half. But I got two more things. <laughs> Point number two. Hospitality. And you might be like, sweet, I love hospitality. I love throwing dinner parties. <laughs> and you're good at it. There's a lot of you that are really good at throwing dinner parties. I want us to get real about biblical hospitality, though. Here's back in Luke 24. 
As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? This is the first glimpse into biblical hospitality. Two friends walking on a, tr- on a road, and some stranger is either trailing behind them or lurking around the corner. We don't know how it, he actually like merged in. And, but, but he was a stranger who just decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk with these guys. And these guys were like, okay, you can walk. And when he asked them a question, they didn't say, uh, can you get out of our business? <laughs> they, they addressed him. They, they walked with him. They spent the rest of the day with him. But it didn't stop there. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And then we see they ate together. And this is biblical hospitality. The word for hospitality in the Greek is phylloxenos. For all the Greek fans out there, phylloxenos comes from two root words. You probably know what philo means. Loving. And then xenos. Strangers. It is literally, literally, and I'm not saying that figuratively. I'm literally saying it is literally the, death, the opposite of xenophobia. Philoxenos is taking people who are not part of your family and making them feel like they're part of your family. And so it's possible to throw the best dinner party ever and still not even come near hospitality. Because maybe there are no strangers in your house at that dinner party. And that's fine. You're allowed to have dinner with your family. (laughs) I'm not rebuking you. Maybe there are no strangers. You never bring anyone new into your house. Or when people do come in, they don't feel loved. We should be convicted by this. So here's some hospitality scriptures from the New Testament that I think are amazing. 1 Peter 4. Now when we see a scripture that starts with, the end of all things are near, we think like, end of the world, doom and gloom, like things are going to get crazy. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins and offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Which is the weirdest end of like, like end times scripture. <laughs> and that's why I don't think this is like a, an end time scripture. That's a separate sermon. But Peter said, hey, guys, this is important. And I'm I'm commanding you in the Lord. Offer hospitality, phylloxenos, to one another without grumbling. Here's another one. 1 Timothy. This is Paul to Timothy. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Okay, so that's like some of the elder qualifications and that's, we've all, you know, gone round and round like, you know, what does it mean to be a, an elder or a deacon? But hospitable is, a, is one of those character traits. Does this person who desires to be a deacon or an elder or an overseer in the church, can he take a stranger and make him into a friend? 
Because if he can't do that, then what good is he? And then here's one last one. This is a quote from Flavius Claudius Julian. He's describing Christians, and he calls them these impious Galileans. And he means impious, meaning that they're not pious to the throne, to the Caesar. They don't declare Caesar as Lord. These impious Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours also, welcoming them into their agape. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. This this isn't a Christian guy. And he's like, man, what are we going to do with these people? They love, they're just too good at loving people. And so when we see the road to Emmaus, we see these two guys who, they have a relationship and the stranger walks up. They don't know it's Jesus, but the stranger walks up and they're like, yeah, you can walk with us, let's talk. And then when they get to their destination, they're like, no, stay with us. We had such a good conversation, now we feel like your family, like, Come in, eat with us, stay the night. It's a lesson we can learn. Am I making friends out of strangers? Am I practicing hospitality? Do you look for strangers? When you walk in the room, do you look for the people you know as as like a haven and comfort, or do you look for the people you don't know? Do you greet the people you don't know? Do you know how to help someone feel seen, heard, valued, appreciated? And it comes as a risk. I'm just going to be totally open, lay all my cards out on the table. Guys, I remember in campus ministry, we were studying the Bible with this guy, and we, uh, we went to midweek. We had a Wednesday night church service, and he wasn't there. And we're like, oh, I wonder where that guy is. And we come back, and our house was robbed. And we're like, well... That's a coincidence. And we never saw that guy again. I'm like, give me a break, dude. Like, like we were nice to you. Like, we, helped, we loved you. And it comes at a risk. Hospitality comes at a risk. You give your hearts to people. There's no guarantee that they're going to respond in kind. There's no guarantee that they're even going to like you back. They might actually look to take advantage of you. We have Campus Devo at our house every Friday night, all year long. We have random, strange, college-age students that come into our house. And we try to make them feel loved. And yet there's a... Guys, I'm super cynical. If you, have not, if you don't know about my like, dark side, I usually think the worst all the time. And so when, a, when someone comes in, I'm like... I'm like, don't be looking around too hard, man. Are you casing the joint? I've already been down this road. I've been robbed by someone before. I'm like, I need, I, need, I need more cameras in my house in case someone's wandering around. But there have been times, guys, I'm going to be totally honest. There have been times where we've had like money, like cash money out on our dresser or something, and then it goes missing. And we're like, where'd that go? We look for it. We can't find it. Ask the boys. We're like, I don't know. But, but we're, we're, we're ripe for the pickings because we have so many people in our house. And you might be like, you're not selling me on this hospitality thing, bro. <laughs> I 
The temptation then is to shut up our homes. Make them little fortresses where we protect our way of life instead of sharing our way of life. But you don't have to just do it in your homes. You can do it out in public. You can do it here. You can do it in the fellowship. Find people you don't know and make them feel loved. That's hospitality. Last one. Spiritual discernment. This is the last thing that these guys, they weren't excellent at it. They were noobs, but they, they, they were trying. They were, they were trying to figure it out. And here's, here's how that went down. Luke 24, 32. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I don't know if you've ever felt that. Like, man, like my heart feels on fire right now because of what I'm hearing or what I'm experiencing or what the Spirit of God is doing in my life. The disciples on the road to Emmaus felt something working in their hearts. They felt it. And then they talked about it with each other. Did you feel that? I I don't know what that was. Spiritual discernment, another way to say it, is that it's the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's the processing of what it feels like when God is working in you and through you. And even as this story demonstrates, it's not super crystal clear all the time. It can be confusing. And which is why I'm glad they had each other and they talked it out. And so we did a lesson a while back on, um, on the Holy Spirit. And I just wanted to do a, a quick recap. Because when we think about the Holy Spirit, I've seen, I've seen the Holy Spirit be used as a scapegoat for lots of crazy things in people's lives. I've heard too many people attribute all kinds of things to the Holy Spirit. And I think we have to be careful. It would literally be blasphemous to think that the Spirit of the living God is some, like, catch-all for every whim that we have. So I'm not going to have all these scriptures up on the screen. I'm just going to put them there. Feel free uh, to write them down, read them later. But here's four things that the Holy Spirit does, okay? The Holy Spirit points to Jesus. In John 14, 26 and 15, 26, Jesus says, The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, uh, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And then a chapter later, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send out, the Spirit of truth, he will testify about me. And so the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. Here's a big one. The Holy Spirit convicts our hearts. John 16, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I'll elaborate a little bit when I get to the end of this. But the Holy Spirit is gonna, if you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, you're gonna feel that like, oh, my sin is not comfy right now. The Holy Spirit never contradicts God. John 16, 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And so the Holy Spirit 
is in tune with the divine presence of God in Jesus. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit bears fruit. Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so, this is just my little field guide into spiritual discernment. If you're feeling something, and you're tempted to say, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. Why don't you run through these? It's very easy to assume that everything that pops in your head is godly. But it might just be the own evil desires within you. Mark 7, Jesus says that. Or it could be worse. (laughs) It could be demonic. So ask this. Is this feeling reminding me of a teaching of Jesus? Or is it just confirming something that I want to be true? Because the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. Is this feeling convicting me of my sin? Or is this feeling trying to rationalize and give me an excuse for why my sin isn't that bad? That question alone will save you a lot of heartache in this world. Can I find what I'm saying somewhere else in the Bible? Or is it contradicting other spiritual truths? And... When I follow this prompting, will my life be more loving? When I go down this path, that this feeling in me, that I'm trying to discern, this feeling in me and this thought that I have, if I go down this path, am I going to be more loving? Am I going to be more patient? Am I going to be more gentle? Am I going to be more self-controlled? Because guys, there have been a lot of times where people follow these thoughts and feelings and compulsions and these, these things in their heart, and then their life produces the opposite of those things. They're not not self-controlled. They're not gentle. They're not loving. They're not patient. And that is what John calls testing the spirits. 1 John 4, 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And what John is pointing at here is there's going to be an endless Um, supply of rationalizations for whatever you want to do. And so we have to learn how to test the spirits. We need to train ourselves to have spiritual discernment. Are you spending time contemplating, meditating, analyzing what is going on in your connection to God? Or are you just too busy? I'm just too busy. I'm just too exhausted. I'm just too numbed. I just am coasting through life. And then, like the guys on the road to Emmaus, do you have someone in your life that you will allow to tell you? Do you give anyone permission to tell you that you might be wrong in how you discern things? Think about what Jesus said. When he, stranger, still, stranger. And he's like, you foolish people. Do you have someone that that might help you realize when you're not discerning things or when you're discerning things improperly? Have you demonstrated to people that you can take this training seriously and that you welcome their insight? Or maybe you have, you know, lashed out a few times or hurt people that are trying to help you. If we want to train ourselves for spiritual discernment, we are going to have to get good at thinking 
meditating, contemplating, but also having community. People in our lives where you can say, guys, this is what I'm feeling. What do you think? And they'll be like, hmm, I don't know. (laughs) Jesus said, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. And then went on to teach them. And so the guys on the road to Emmaus, they, they did three things really well, pretty well. And I think that we could learn from those things. Our first century brothers and sisters excelled at sharing what God has done. History, not philosophy. The philosophy of Christianity didn't come around for a hundred or more years. They practice hospitality, inviting a stranger to walk with them and then begging him to stay. And their spiritual discernment, feeling the Spirit's prompting, talking about it with each other, and even allowing Jesus to correct their preconceptions. If we can work on these things in our personal discipleship, but also collectively, as a family, as a group, I think that God will see us as a people he can partner with. He can work through. He's like, I can work through these people. I can teach them the way that Jesus taught the the guys on the road. I can bless their efforts, not because they're the most amazing people in the world. God knows we're not. (laughs) But because we have hearts that are striving for that intimacy with God. Amen? Guys, that's all I have for you at this time. I've asked Alex Paul to do our communion this morning. Come on up, Alex. Alex.